0: On this episode of the podcast, I have with me Greg Mioskovitz. He is the CEO, co-founder of CapBase. Well, we're going to dive into this episode and talk about some of the complexities facing founders and handling of the equity side, right? So there's a lot of different manual solutions, different point solutions, and there's a lot of touch points that you'd be surprised about. And, And also, Greg has some experience and insights in terms of as an actual employee as a potential, you know, job candidate looking for equity, stock options, whatnot, what you could look for, what you should be asking. So going to dive into a bunch of different topics. Hopefully we'll cover as much as we can. Greg, thanks for being on the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me on there.
0: Absolutely. So I know you uh, had me, uh, you kind of phonetically helped me through your name and uh, full disclosure, I was going to ask you to pronounce your name for the audience because obviously I tried to do as best job as I could, but I'm going to give you that chance and then dive in.
1: Oh, yeah. So my legal name, my government name, I guess, is Grzegorz uh, Mionskiewicz. But I go by Greg Miaskowitz because no one can pronounce Polish names outside of Eastern Europe or really Poland. So that's the only place people can pronounce my name if I write it down.
0: Absolutely. I tried. I did the phonetic spelling and uh, I didn't think I could do justice. So I appreciate you uh, doing that. And then I guess, you know, for the audience, if you could, maybe a little context of uh, you know, who you are and uh, what your company CapBase
1: does. Yeah. So I've been working in early stage startups for most of my career, probably around 13 years now. And I actually took probably an unconventional path to enter the world of tech, actually, studied the humanities as in philosophy and history and, and economics. And then I went to did graduate research in philosophy and then ended up abandoning academia. And I ended up going back to tech, which is something I, I learned to program at a very early age. I've also been always fascinated by design. I applied to art schools and almost went to school for design. And I actually kind of think in retrospect, I should have studied industrial design because I've been fascinated with the design of everything from cars to furniture. But it is similarly interesting to build digital products, whether that's an experience on your computer or mobile phone. And so I started out working kind of at the Conjunction of design and engineering, working in UI design, product design, and also front-end development. I then did some full-stack engineering work and then switched over to working in products. I founded my first company in 2014. We developed a real-time bot detection software. That company was called Swarm. And so the way that worked was something similar to Captcha, but the user didn't know they were being tested and this was completely real time. This is like a piece of javascript that could be thrown into any web page or ad unit and then we would identify if that impression or page view was shown to a human or a bot. And we sold that company in 2016 to Integral Ad Science where then I led up some of the advertising fraud and bot detection R&D at the company for a couple of years. It was one of their three core product lines. And then Integral was bought by Vista Private Equity in the summer of 2018, and I left soon after that. And the day I actually quit was the day I incorporated CapBase and bought the domain name. And I'd already been doing the research that went into the product from talking to founders to talking to VCs about how they get data from companies and do financial reporting to talking to lawyers about how. They provide services to early stage companies to identify really the scope of what we're building and what went into the product vision and roadmap. And what we're really trying to solve at Capbase is problems that I have seen personally as a founder, as an advisor or investor into companies, also as a employee of early stage startups as well. Doing really common things like hiring an employee and giving them stock options, incorporating the company and doing business registrations, that often falls into the lap of one or two of the founders who, before they start a company, they might not know how a cap table works. They have no idea what the compliance requirements are for their company. Most of them don't have access to good lawyers. Frankly, the good corporate startup lawyers exist in a few tech hub cities, and it's a gated referral network in the sense that you have to have an intro from another founder or investor to get a partner from the law firm to speak to you. Then you have to pitch them on your company, and they will size up your idea and you as a person in order to decide whether to take you on as a client. Because they're effectively taking on early stage companies as business development for getting relationships established with startups before they become big, so that they can make a lot of revenue post-Series A from these companies. So effectively, until the company reaches that stage, it's completely loss-leading for the law firm. They either don't make any profit or they lose money on the work they're doing for, doing for early stage companies. So most founders don't have really great legal help. The ones that do, like let's say you have a lawyer from Oric or Fenwick or Gunderson, Dittmer, Perkins Cooey, that relationship, because of the financial incentives I just spoke to you about, that it's financially loss leading for the law firm, effectively you're their lowest priority client, Unless you're contacting them about fundraising or an M&A scenario, their response time is crappy. And they don't volunteer information that founders need to know. And founders are afraid to ask questions because every time they send an email, it costs $800 to $1,000 an hour billed in six minute increments, right? So you're going to be spending $80 to $100 an hour just to have an email skimmed by your lawyer. So simple things like, when do I need to file this form to keep my company compliant in California, you know, fall by the wayside. A lot of also executed legal agreements are frankly lost. No one organizes the document room properly. And the company, ends up really spending a ton of money that is preventable fees right on cleaning up their document room and doing corporate housekeeping before they raise their first real money from investors or go to try to sell the company.
0: Let me ask you this question. So you started cap base knowing that this gap existed and you had gone through some of the trials of uh, getting you know the right documents in place getting associated with the right person And you'd actually gone through it. How many times you come across a founder that just doesn't even know a question to ask just because they have an idea, they're going to run with it. And then it's like, well, hold on, time out.
1: Yeah. So often when I talk to founders, they have no idea what they're doing with regards to the optimal jurisdiction. Like they think it's basically that they can set up an LLC in their home state and that's fine and they can convert it later. That process, depending on what state they register an LLC in, may be rather tedious to convert it to a Delaware C-corporation. Moreover, because of this conversion, in many cases, both the founders as well as the investors lose out on a tax discount through a qualified small business stock. So, it is often preferable to have the company be registered as a Delaware C corporation from the get go. If the founders believe that they are going to be raising money from outside investors, then they'll have a need for something like multiple classes of shares within the corporate structure of their startup.
0: And I guess when you're kind of approaching, you know, if if I'm a founder and I'm, you know, looking at that, I could make that mistake when you're going back to raise funds and if I haven't you know, properly you know, done the setup and maybe I'm not a Delaware company, I just hey, I'm, I'm in California, I'm doing it. Are investors going to look at that and be like, hey, that's not optimal. You're less desirable. You got to go fix that, come back. How, how did the investors look at it?
1: Investors will want to invest if it's a great opportunity and maybe in certain rare exceptions, willing to overlook this sort of structure, or they'll demand that the conversion take place. It might be a thing where it has to happen before the money is wired, even though the uh, investment agreement might be completed.
0: Yeah. I mean, so it sounds like a great idea. Hey, it doesn't matter. We're going to gonna invest. But...
1: but there's other cases where investors will just straight up be not talk to you, though, especially angel investors at the early stage of a company. They're like, I don't deal with LLCs. Basically, the tax issues when you're converting it into a C-corp are non-trivial in complexity and also potential cost.
0: Definitely getting it right. Step one is, is, sounds like it's far better for everyone.
1: I'll give you another example. Take the bureaucracy in Europe. Like I'm originally from Poland. The bureaucracy at the corporate level is, I don't know, above, average bad for European standards. But in Germany, it's abysmal because they don't even accept e-signatures. So, imagine that every single time that a company wants to raise seed money for their German corporate entity, the GmbH, or I believe it's called, they end up having to have each of the investors show up in German court and have their investor agreement signature notarized. Hmm. And because of this bureaucracy, the average time to close an investment round from the time you sign the term sheet or even the final investment agreement, it's usually a minimum of six months because of of how complicated their bureaucracy is. And so investors know this and they've heard horror stories from other investors. So they won't even touch German entities like sophisticated technology angel investors I had friends who had already sold a company, and they talked to a German lawyer who convinced them to set up a German entity and that it would be fine. They'd already started a Delaware C corp in the past and sold it. They'd had an early exit for their first company, and they moved to Berlin. And their lawyer convinced them to do this German entity. And everyone I had tried to introduce them to was like, "Well, I don't really do the German companies," so. I'll talk to them once they have a uh, registered in Delaware as a C corporation but I won't even take the meeting. It's not worth my time, and this is going to take three months for them to do so
0: that's a heck of a barrier, especially yeah I mean especially if you're sitting in Germany and and you've got a great idea and your next strategic step is also dealing with opening up a uh, a company in Delaware so that you can actually get the v c funding you're looking for. I'm sure that is. A pretty good overhead.
1: Even dealing with issuing stock options to your employees might be easier with a U.S. entity, even though you have a German-based company, your employees are all in Germany. I, that, that's hypothetically true in some jurisdictions. The other reason that foreign founders often register Delaware C-corporations is simply because the legal institutions and the bureaucracy is corrupt. So, for example, we have a partnership with a startup accelerator and incubator called The Venture City, which primarily has companies in their portfolio that are going through their program that are based in Brazil and Mexico. But they don't actually trust the legal system in these countries. (laughs) So they make every single company going through their incubator accelerator programs go convert to a Delaware C-Corp if they already have a corporate entity.
0: Wow. So I guess if you're looking at this and you know, it sounds like obviously, you know, if you're a founder, paperwork and overhead is probably not what you're looking for. You're you're too busy with, you know, trying to scrape and survive and get that first round of funding. It sounds like you're talking about a lot of illegal documents. Sometimes there's that there can be DocuSign. Maybe if you're, you know, in a situation, maybe you, it can't be an e-signature, who knows? But it sounds like a whole lot of documents that you're accountable for, legal documents, and I'm assuming founders. You know, I personally am not great with (laughs) keeping my file cabinet organized regardless. And I'm sure with founders that you look at, I mean, I'm sure that's, again, overhead to their day. How complex or how convoluted is all these documents?
1: So it's not even just the documents. It's having all of the governance controls and prerequisites in place. So, for example, many companies just go ahead and sign convertible notes or safes to raise money. But the board has not yet authorized the financing using such convertible equity vehicles for fundraising. And similarly, you know, you have like Stripe Atlas, like even if you use some of these other tools that are kind of point solutions for incorporating, the whole reason Stripe Atlas exists is lead gen for Stripe. So basically, so foreign companies or e-commerce sites can set up US entities and accept payment via Stripe with their US bank account. So if the Stripe Atlas product really just does the incorporation, the bank account setup, and they only recently added board setup, but you would have companies that weren't even really fully formed coming through this product. Like they hadn't approved a stock plan or a board or done the founders' share purchases. And it's kind of... Funny, like if you look through the customer support forums, because what happens is you incorporate this company, the, the workflow phone stripe atlas, you incorporate a company, you get a company that's not even fully set up, and then they just link the founders to a zip file of BORIC documents, like template documents from this major corporate law firm. The problem with that is that founders don't know how to use these documents. So they might, for example, execute an advisory agreement with a restricted share award to an advisor. And that restricted share award references a stock plan, which references a board, but they haven't yet actually set up their board or gotten the board consent for this. And they might not have ever had the board approve a stock plan. So if you look through the customer support complaints about Stripe Atlas, it's because Basically, founders can shoot themselves in the foot with all these template docs that don't have any kind of governance controls around their usage or getting the required consents for their authorization within the corporate board structure.
0: Is that governance that you're talking about? I guess when you're starting off and you get all these documents and you're trying to execute them, they're all templates... The governance component of that, I guess, down the road, when you're going to sit in front of an investor and your lot of I's are not dotted and T's are not crossed. I mean, what are some of the consequences to that, like a little bit further down the process?
1: Well, in some cases, you fail diligence and the deal gets nuked. In other cases, you basically, the deal gets slowed down and it's a rectifiable error, but you end up spending out through the nose on legal fees to clean up the document room.
0: Absolutely. It sounds like really, you know, keeping it clean, starting off with the right steps, the right, you know, documents in place, incorporating in the right state. It sounds like really there's a massive payoff long term. Just, you know, like you said in the beginning, a great idea is a great idea. You'll get investment, but there's going to be a little bit of hold up, a little slowdown potentially your deal could get nuked, but it sounds like more and more, you got to get all your ducks in a row because it's just the cost of going back and fixing this is, is tremendous.
1: Yeah, so for example, if you have an LLC with multiple classes of shares, like if you go deep down the path of this other corporate structure, then the actual cost and complexity of converting it down the road when you're trying to raise, I don't know, a $20 million Series A round from a top-tier investor will be extremely high. You know, even if someone uses some, they're not sure what they want in terms of LLC or C-Corp, like they're not sure they want to raise money from investors, basically at the point where they decide, I need to raise money from investors, then they have really two choices, right? If they've already done business with the LLC and have business agreements going through that LLC, but they don't have any complexity in the shareholder structure, it should be pretty easy to make the flip because there's not a lot of you know shareholders to get signatures on because maybe there's only one or two owners and they can transfer their equity. But there's still a lot of downsides for even just the founders in this case, in terms of Part of the advantages of registering as a C Corp right away is that you can actually lock in long term capital gains on your stock as opposed to basically transferring this asset. And it reduces the tax complexity for getting capital into the company at the early stages, which is when you actually really need it.
0: I guess, you know, we've been talking about founders quite a bit, and I think. It sounds like the right course is to set things up, right? I mean, 100 that makes sense. I guess maybe also talk about, you know, people joining startups, right? I mean, every, I mean if you're in the Silicon Valley area, San Francisco, or any major metropolitan city with you know, VC money coming in, you might be looking at a job at a company that's offering you some kind of equity. And let's say you've not gone through the process since your first time, and you're obviously trying to make sense of it, all these legal documents. From that perspective of a candidate looking to work for a, a, um, a startup, what should they be looking for in general? Again, this is not legal advice, just from your, you know, your experience and obviously what you guys do.
1: So there's a, actually, I think, a huge problem with a lot of startups being cagey about providing specific pieces of information that are necessary for a prospective employee to value what their option grant or restricted share award, like what that actually means to them in tangible financial terms. So for example, the two pieces of information I would always ask for if I were taking a job at a startup, like, okay, you're giving me, I don't know, 15, 20,000 shares. How many outstanding shares are there? Basically, you need to know what percentage of the company you're getting. If someone is refuses to tell you this information, it's kind of sketchy. Because if I'm getting 10,000 out of 10 million shares, that's very different from 10,000 out of 50 million shares, or 100 million, or 1 million too, right? So the refusal to communicate that information is really... I think, sketchy on the part of the companies and HR managers really should be forthcoming with this information. The second question I would ask would be, what was the last 409A? Basically, how does that translate into your share price? Because you can only be offered shares at fair market value. So you need to know what your exercise price is. So let's say you would be able to exercise your stock options at $10 a share. Well, that's not as great as if you could exercise your options at $1 a share, because then the potential upside is huge. The difference in potential upside is huge on a per share basis. So there's a lot of factors to consider here. But really, what you want to know is, what is the exercise price of my stock? And then how does that compare to the valuation in the last investment round and potential valuation in the future of this company? Otherwise, you, don't, you just are granted something, but you don't know how much you have to pay for it, so you don't know what the potential upside is on a per-share basis. And if I were to take a VP... SVP, C level, really a position with a lot of seniority, head of product, whatever, I would be asking harder questions. For example, has the startup taken any down round investment? If so, can you tell me what the liquidation preferences are? Because frankly, they don't have to give you the full cap table but you need to know what the liquidation preferences and it were that were established in the down round. So for example, this company took a financial hit because of COVID and they took a, a subsequent investment round where the valuation dropped 30% from their previous investment round, okay? So that investor, because they're investing in a down round often demands additional protections, to guarantee additional upside in case the company recovers. So they typically ask for liquidation preferences, which means that they invested $5 million that they have to at least be returned 3X their principal amount before anyone else gets paid out from a hypothetical acquisition or liquidity event in the future. So what happens, you know, say the company gets acquired after the down round and say there's a hundred million dollars in the bucket of money to be paid out. First, you have to pay out the last series preferred investors and deal with their liquidation preferences. Then you deal with the previous round and the previous round. And eventually you just have what's left to the common shareholders, which is the founders and employees. So at that point, you know, it could be that Yes, the company sells for $200 million, but they've taken a down round with liquidation preferences that are you know, advantageous to the later investors twice. So what's left for the founders and employees is $20 million distributed over 200 employees, which isn't really a great payout for anyone because of the liquidation preferences. So if I were taking a senior role with a really sizable chunk of equity in a company, I would want to know about. Well, did you take a down round? Does anyone have anything other than one to one liquidation preferences on the cap table?
0: Interesting. That's some great insight. And I guess, uh, yeah, depending on if you're first time around or you're you're looking at a, a higher level executive you know, type of role.
1: I mean, there are a lot of other things that you should look into when you are vetting a potential job offer from a startup. And the biggest ones are founder personality and founder dynamics, you really have to know how are the founders as human beings? What are their incentives? What are they trying to do with this company? Are they realistic about the business goals? Are they realistic about how to execute on them? Do they really work well together as a team? And you want to avoid you know, kind of like megalomaniacal, really egoistic founders. They're not going to be fun to work with. I worked in tons of early stage companies and, you know, myself as a manager of a company and, you know, now 15 employees, I don't necessarily know, okay, this is like my positive body of knowledge about this is good managerial practices, but I've seen every single anti pattern in early stage startups with immature management. And I avoid those anti-patterns and just try to listen to people and lead with empathy and create structures for feedback to avoid some of these pitfalls I've seen. And so that's something to definitely look out for. The second thing is to look at what the processes are that are in place in the team. For example, do you have proper project management and project planning? Or are things really being done kind of on a whimsy because some customer asked for something and the CEO flipped out about it and we have to drop everything you're doing and build something totally different? Similarly, do you have proper product management processes? Because these things often fall by the wayside as you're trying to build an MVP. And it's hard to institute them in a culture of people who are hacking on something day in, day out. And a lot of the people who are pretty strong hires from an engineering perspective in the early days of a company are not great team members really for a growing company. So there's a lot of managerial changes and process changes that need to happen once a company goes past like 10 people or, you know, things don't really get done very efficiently. And there's a lot of miscommunication and mismanagement going on unless they have the right processes in place for decision making and prioritization and planning.
0: Awesome, man. That's some fantastic insight. And I know, you know, you've gone through it, you've experienced it. And I guess, you know, to bring it full circle. You've created a company, CapBase, that you know, is trying to help address some of these issues in terms of uh, helping founders you know, account for the process and making sure things are done the right way. I guess, talk to us a little bit about what you guys do as well at CapBase, because I'd like to just kind of touch on that. Because it sounds like you know, with your experience in, in, the, in the business that you've you know, founded now that this might be a great fit for a lot of people out there.
1: Yeah. So, what we try to do is really simplify life for founders so they can worry about building a product, a great product, and making their customers happy instead of worrying about the administrative tasks for running a company. So, you can think of us as startup admin as a service or, you know, SaaS with an extra A. (sighs) Sassy. (laughs) We've built a streamlined workflow for a lot of kind of core actions that every company needs to take like whether that's doing a incorporation or business registration bringing on board an advisor hiring an employee and giving them stock options raising money using a SAFE or convertible note and through those streamlined workflows, we automate the financial and legal record keeping, as well as any compliance and governance required around those actions. So the way that works is, you know, whether you're incorporating your company and buying your founder shares, or you're hiring employee and giving them stock options, or you're raising money from investors, the workflow is more or less the same. We walk the founders through customizing and generating standard legal agreements. We visualize to them what the impact is to the cap table. So like, what percentage of the company are you giving this employee? How does it compare to other employees? What percentage of your employee stock option pool is left? Or in the investment case, let's say, what percentage of the company would you be selling to the investor in these different scenarios where this uh, safer convertible note would convert in the future? So we model that out. So then once the founder is ready, they fully understand what they're doing and what the impact is to their cap table. They issue the contracts for signing in our system. We do the e-signatures. We also electronically process the payments, which is typically done with a manual wire transfer or a physical check. And we digitize that using APIs and we use Plaid Link API to, or Plaid Link SDK to connect into the company bank account and route the payments that way. And so this actually solves a pain point, not just for the founders on the administrative side, because I'll tell you how it works as a founder. Like we raised money from four angel investors last December. They each for 25K, each for on the exact same terms, each in the same week. They all signed the paperwork. Three of them wired the money. And I had no idea who didn't pay us because there's no labels on these wires from investors. It's just like a random account ID and routing number. So... The reconciliation of all these payments is actually very complicated, as is the cat herding of when you know, you're raising a series, preferred financing, of making sure everyone wires all the money on time. And then on the investment side, every single time you invest into a new company as an angel investor, you basically have to send over a signature block and manually initiate a wire transfer or pay like a back office administrator to do this for you. And that whole process could be simplified by doing what we do is just basically, it's like PayPal, right? You connect your bank account to PayPal once, then you are paying for another thing using PayPal, whether that's eBay or some other website or a New York Times subscription. And you don't have to manually initiate a wire transfer to the New York Times or eBay because it's just the bank account is already connected. So we're providing that same level of convenience for anyone who has to pay for equity. And so in my case, I am an advisor in, in companies. I am an employee of my own company. <laughs> i stock on investing schedule. I am an investor shareholder in some companies but these purchases are really being manually orchestrated. So it would solve a huge administrative pain point to one, have the data in the same place, but also simply just not have to manually do wire transfers every single time and, then have all my documents in the same place. So just switching gears back to the product for the workflow, we do the e-signatures, we process the transactions, then as soon as the transaction goes through, the cap table is automatically updated in real-time, there's no manual data entry as if you were, like it's the case when you're using Carta or captable.io or any of the other equity management solutions. And then also, we take all of the executed legal agreements and we put them in the company's document room on cafes so they're organized and searchable for future review and due diligence in an M&A scenario or a subsequent fundraising round.
0: It sounds like you guys take a lot of the extra effort. And I think early in the podcast, we talked about the importance of doing things right and not having to go back and either slow or derail issues. It sounds like you know, you've got a pretty darn good product to help somebody keep it organized, stay on track. I love it. I mean, it sounds like it's definitely a need for the industry. I mean, a lot of people are working on it, but you have a unique insight. I I think it's fantastic. I appreciate you sharing.
1: If anyone listening out there wants to give our product a try and is ready to incorporate their company, you can go to capbase.com. And if you have any questions about our product, you can hop on the intercom chat and me or my co-founder will respond to you in a few minutes. Awesome. Thanks for spending the time with us and
0: kind of going through uh, some of the challenges, pitfalls of you know, founders and even from the employee side of it. If, if someone does have a question and they want to circle back with you, what's the best way to connect with you if they have a question on anything? My email
1: is greg at capbase.com.
0: Okay. Awesome. We'll drop that in the show notes. And I appreciate you being on. Thank you very much. Uh, and I can't wait to get this out there for people to listen. And that's it for this episode. We'll be back again uh, with a new episode, you guessed. In the meantime, I asked for two things. One is, please subscribe to the podcast. It's just been growing really quickly. And I think for whatever reason, these algorithms really rely on those subscriptions and we're seeing huge growth. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And also feedback. If, you know, if there's topics you want us to cover, if there's something you didn't like, we can improve on the podcast. You know, We're all ears. We want to improve it. We want to provide more value. But until next time, thanks.